Second City has a new number one. Incoming CEO Ed Wells comes from the creator of Sesame Street and says he wants to expand to a third city. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin about news from the local housing market, including how the upper end of said market has broken yet another record, and it's only September. We are now at 104 sales at $4 million or more. And again, that's compared to the old long-term average uh, of 51 sales a year. It's, It's astonishing. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, September 15th. At Wintrust Community Banks, you're more than just another account number. No matter your stage of life, Wintrust's dependable bankers are as dedicated to your financial success as you are. After three decades of serving communities across Chicagoland, Wintrust has built its reputation on exceptional customer satisfaction and a strong local presence. That's why Wintrust is proud to be ranked number one in customer satisfaction in retail banking in Illinois by J.D. Power. Visit Wintrust.com slash J.D. Power to learn more about Wintrust's award-winning banking experience. Members FDIC. For J.D. Power 2022 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Hi there, and welcome to Crane's Daily Gist, live brought to you by Wintrust. I'm your host, Amy Guth, and I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. I can't not, like, dance a little bit when I say that. News of the week from the local housing market. Anyway, hello, Dennis. Hi, Amy. Thanks for the dance. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Um, we got so many things to talk about this week. Holy moly. And I did last week at the end of the podcast, I said, you know, we're kind of in that post-Labor Day lull. I know. I must have broken the spell because immediately after that, the stories started rolling in. And a couple of them are follow-ups on stories that we've recently talked about. So let's start, though, by talking about upper-end housing sales, because we keep kind of saying they're tracking to perhaps look better than they did last year. We're tracking to do this, and it's only September, but what is what is the latest right now? Well, yeah, it's only September, but already at the upper end of the market, there have been more homes sold than in all of 2021. It, uh, we have a couple months left to go, uh, so you know these numbers, but to repeat them, In the years prior to the pandemic, on average, there were 51 homes sold in the Chicago area at $4 million or more. That being approximately 50 is why I make a list of everything that sells at $4 million or more. We also track other segments of the market. So the average going into the pandemic was 51 a year. Last year in 2021, during the height of the boom, uh, of the pandemic housing boom, 101 sales. Uh, happened. So it essentially doubled from the average. This year, so far, we're only in mid-September, there have been 104 sales. Wow, it happened. Yeah, yeah. When we were talking last week, I said, well, we're getting really close, it's likely. And then um, two came in on Friday and one on Monday. It's possible that as soon as I hang up with you today, another one will be in my inbox. But we are now at 104 sales at $4 million or more. And again, that's compared to the old long-term average the old, uh, of 51 sales a year. It's, it, it's astonishing. That's really remarkable. I mean, hard to say, right? But, but it seems like at some point, will that bar of $4 million perhaps have to go up? 
Well, it does in a certain way. We used to publish every January um, everything over $4 million. And this past year, we published, it, it was like $4.89 million. And I think so far, it, it's pretty likely that in this, this January, we'll be publishing only sales over $50 million. I would probably, I think now that this holds, I will probably stop tracking everything at $4 million. Uh, maybe I'll start at $5 million. But um, just given that we have this long-term uh, performance record, I might want to stick with four. I also, as you know, I track everything over a million and, and all sales as well. But it's just fascinating to see this. One thing I haven't mentioned is sales at all prices have started to drop. Sales at all prices year to date are at about 10 to 12 percent below 2021. So this being uh, well above 20, this sector being well above 2021 does sort of show that it is behaving differently. The top end of the market is behaving very differently than the market overall. Well, let's talk about some of those houses. So let's talk about the Dree House Mansion. This appeared in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, so I'm sure a lot of people will recognize it. But tell me about this place. Well, you know, actually, it's a little bit difficult to recognize from Ferris Bueller's Day Off because at the time the movie was filmed, it was white painted brick and now it's red brick. So not everybody. And the other thing, this was interesting when I posted the story, people asked me both on Twitter and on Facebook, oh, was that Shea Paul, which is in the Blues Brothers and also was a famous restaurant. Shea Paul was several blocks away. This, uh, when it was in Ferris Bueller, was called Shea Quiz, at, but it was not a restaurant. It was a house being used as a movie location. Anyway, built in 1877, and Richard Driehaus, the financial um, executive, bought it in the mid-'80s, still owned it at the time of his death in 2021. I read in multiple places that this was not where he lived, but it sure is nice. So perhaps he lived there in the 80s? Don't know. Uh, but built in 1877, needed some rehab, obviously needed the white paint scraped off the brick when he bought it. And he just did it to the nines. That uh, canopy we saw over the front walk was added. The thing that looks like a crown over the front walk was added. There was a lot done to the historical interior, which we see here. And then there is also a section. So this all looks sort of palatial from the 1870s early 1900s. Then when you proceed back in the house, you find a 1930s section. There's a piece of the house that was designed to look like, or the design was inspired by the SS Normandy, which sailed in 1935 and was this great Art Deco ship. And when we get to those rooms, you see a, a real departure from what the front of the house looks like. You're in the 1870s and you go back through the house and you're in the 1930s. I don't know exactly why that happened. I think it was just a fun rehab. The agent couldn't talk to me. The Dree House estate doesn't talk to me. So all I know is what I see in the pictures and what's mentioned in the listing. That's how we know it's based on the SS Normandy. I mean, it's very clearly Art Deco and we'll get to it, but it's based on the SS Normandy. So they're asking just under $6 million for this. This is, uh, it's it's the third Driehaus related mansion you and I have talked about since he died in uh, spring of 2021. Uh, there was his giant one in Lake Geneva, which sold. There is another one we just talked about a couple of months ago that 
Uh, he bought for his wife in 2010, and there was some confusion in the records that I talked about here. Not she is still the owner. Not clear if she is still his was still his wife at the time of death, but it was Treehouse related. Then there's this one also on the market. I know of at least two others on the Gold Coast he owned or his estate owns. They would be the Nickerson Mansion where his museum is and the Ransom Cable House where his offices were. There may be others. None of those have gone on the market and it seems unlikely they will, but um, we're seeing, you know, they're sort of getting rid of this collection of mansions that the man collected during his life. This house is so interesting. It's either this kind of palace look or very well-preserved looking deco style. It's fascinating. There, It's not a blend. It's either or. Yeah, I think it's an, it's an episodic house. In the front, you're in the historical piece. And then in the back, you go into this recreated art deco space. Yeah. And then here you go up these stairs, which uh, began on the first floor. You go up to this glass wrapped conservatory, a big one. Um, well, first you're below the stained glass, this skylight, the stained glass skylight, as far as I know, is original. But then you go out into a glass conservatory on the roof of the house and there's a big deck, um, which would be another episode where you're sitting outside. It's, it's quite a house. It's, it's a lot of house for nearly six million. Now we're in that conservatory. It's gonna be interesting to see what happens. We know that um, a member of the Reyes family, a, bil a fellow billionaire to Driehaus, bought the house in Lake Geneva, and it happened pretty fast. It will be interesting to see if this one has a similar experience. Yeah, it'll, it'll definitely be interesting to see. Who, who buys this one and, and what becomes of it. And hopefully they will they will talk to with you and tell, and tell you everything. Maybe even invite us to come see it. Just saying, just put it out there. <laughs> Speaking it into existence is all. Yeah, of the houses we want to talk about today, um, this would be one of the ones I would really like to get invited to. One of, yeah, there are a few. Um, well, let's actually pause from houses for a second and talk about tax bills because that's a thing I'm sure on a lot of people's minds, but let's, uh, let's dig into that. Yeah, this is sort of interesting. Most Cook County homeowners, probably, well, most Cook County residents may know that uh, one, Cook County has a sort of elaborate property tax situation compared to what you get if you live in any other county. And two, the bills, uh, it, they come out in two installments and the second installment bill, which this year was supposed to come out in July, uh, sorry, in June, payable by August is not out yet. And what we've been told, what county officials have said, including President Preckwinkle, is that it will be out in December, payable in December. Again, it's usually out in June, payable and payable by August. Um, there are all kinds of problems that that creates. Municipalities don't know what they'll be collecting, et cetera. But on the real estate side, what it's doing is causing some headaches at the closing table because uh, once so one of the other things about cook county's property taxes is in 2021 you're paying uh, in 2022 where we are now you're paying 2021's taxes so if i sell my house in 2022 i occupied it in 2021 um, I owe the taxes, but somebody else is going to be living there. So there's a system where the title company takes some of the proceeds, puts them in an escrow account to pay the property tax bill. Right now, it's not known when the property tax bill will come or how much will be due, in, especially in the city, because the city was reassessed 
in 2021. Most people who live in Cook County know that there's a triennial assessment cycle. One third of the county is reassessed every year, and in 2021, it was the city. So the uh, title companies really don't know what your bill is going to be because um, it had it hasn't been issued anywhere you live in Cook County, and we don't even know how much it's going to go up if you live in the city. So title companies are some title companies are requesting uh, that what you put in escrow be twice what last year's uh, second installment bill. Ordinarily, they might ask you for about 110% of last year's bill because they know it's gonna go up in some amount. Now, they don't know how much it's gonna go up. So at Proper Title, for instance, they're asking for uh, 200% of the second installment from last year if you live in the city and 150% if you live outside the city but in Cook County. And um, this is a little bit of a, a problem because all that money is going to come back. The buyer is going to get, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say all that money. If the bill hasn't doubled, the differential will come back. Um, but buyers are already pretty cash crunched, right? Prices are going up, interest rates are going up. It's expensive to move even when those two things aren't happening. And now I'm being asked to put some money on hold for I don't know how long. So it's become, a bit of a headache. It's not, it's not as bad as park districts that don't know whether they can fund their programs next year and those kinds of things. But in the real estate business, it is definitely a headache. Yeah, it's a thing. And, and it sounds like the, the due date is shorter, like the payment window. Right. And there are, there are a hundred sort of extra hassles that can come from this. But um, really what it comes down to is if you're, if you're closing on a property in Cook County, if you have recently or you are later this year, be aware that you may be told, well, we're going to put this extra money away because we just really don't know what we're going to need. Well, I'm sure we will revisit that topic because uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot of reader interest in that. Let's hop back to houses for a bit. And okay, we have talked about this Winnetka Beach quite a few times. I think this is our sixth time to mention it because it's become this ongoing saga, but it's so fascinating. Catch us up, like remind people who maybe missed the first six installments and then tell me the latest. Uh, so the basics are there's a man named Justin Ishbia. Justin and Kristen Ishbia have purchased um, four Winnetka mansions, three in a row, then there's some parkland, then their fourth mansion, then there's some parkland. Um, when buying that fourth one, they made a deal with the Winnetka Park District to swap. Um, they'd get some of the parkland, the park district would get the uh, mansion. And um, the park district then would have a thousand foot lakefront as opposed to two pieces that I, I can't remember. I think the total now is something like 800 feet, but with the swap it gets bigger. Um, and they want to develop a very a, a big beach with rock outcroppings that create a cove, etc. It came out this spring that uh, there is a stipulation in the contract that Justin Ishbia, the owner of these mansions, does not turn over title to that land, that mansion that's stuck between two parks until Winnetka has all the uh, uh, approvals it needs from state and federal agencies to build this lakefront thing. And you need the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and you need the uh, Illinois Department of Natural Resources to sign off if you're going to build a big new beach. When it came out that he gets to control when the deed is handed over, that's really sort of the latest chapter. There were other issues before, but the question is, should he turn it over 
turn over the deed and then let Winnetka pursue its plans? Or should he make sure Winnetka is going to be able to pursue its plans and then hand over this $6 million property? Uh, there was a meeting last week where he said, look, I have made so many concessions. I'm not asking for a visual screen between my property and the beach anymore, which was really my first stories on this. Um, I will now pay the cost of demolishing that mansion in the middle. That could cost up to $150,000. So that would be a donation by him on top of donating the property. He said, but I am not giving up. I, I've put in, I've made these concessions. But at this meeting, he said, the concession I'm not making is I'm not giving you this property until you have the approvals you need. Most of the Park District Board at that meeting basically said, well, we want the property deed. There's another meeting September 22nd. This may be the time when the two parties part, when Winnetka says, okay, then we're just going on without that mansion, or there could be some other outcome. There were members of the park board who said, why don't you just give us the property? Why don't you just donate the property to us? There were other members of the park board who said, well, you know, I kind of get that this guy wants to know that you can actually do what you plan to do with the land before he makes a $6 million donation. So it's gonna be very interesting to see what happens. This matters not just because, you know, I don't swim on the beach in Winnetka, but this has a lot to do with who controls a very precious uh, amenity in Chicago and the North Shore, the lakefront. Um, and it also, it's, it's a big question about, um, you know, is this man, does this man really have the right or do you agree that he should hold on to the property until he knows what's going to happen to it? We're going to have to have a seventh and eighth, or eighth and ninth installation here of this this drama because it. I mean, it is fascinating. It does bring up bigger questions that could be kind of precedent setting that are really fascinating. But you know, I, why do we turn to the streaming services when there's so many soap operas right <laughs> awaiting us right here yeah, exactly. in, in residential real estate? I mean, this has really been a, a, such an interesting story, as you mentioned. When we first kind of talked about it, it was really about these kind of visual screens to kind of make his beach a little more private and working out this land. And now it's become so complicated and fascinating, really. It really is. And um, I think you you might be underestimating when you say this will go to eight episodes. I think we could be talking about this into the 20th episode. We're going to go season two. <laughs> I think so. I think so. <laughs> People will tune in for the finale. It'll be a whole thing, Dennis. It'll be a whole thing. Well, because don't forget, we he still hasn't issued plans for the mansion he's going to build on three acres. And when you've spent uh, a total of nearly $40 million on land, though apparently he'll give about $6 million worth of land to, the, to Winnetka, when you've spent that much on land, you're planning to spend a lot of money on the mansion. That will be sort of the sequel. When he gets ready to build the house, we'll be covering that as well. Yeah, definitely. All right, well, let's go to another story that we just talked about this last week. We were talking about um, the Lakeview House of Theo Epstein. I think by the time we were finished talking about it, it was selling. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. Uh, it was listed on a Friday, the Friday before Labor Day. They didn't do any showings over Labor Day weekend, so they started showing it on Tuesday, and on Thursday it went under contract. Um, so it was under contract in a week, but it was really under contract in about two days because, again, Labor Day weekend got involved. They were asking $3.6 It's a really nice house. It went under contract so quickly, it certainly seems likely that it sells for at or above the asking price, but uh, we'll come back to that when it does sell. 
Yeah, another cliffhanger. We've got several shows going at once here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, and I think I failed to say, Theo Epstein, for those who don't know, is the former president of the Cubs. Sure. No longer with the Cubs and put the house on the market, as I said, right before uh, Labor Day. Yeah. Yeah, last week we had all these sports figures suddenly yeah. in real estate deals. Who knew that sports would uh, bleed over into the, the residential real estate beat so much? All right, let's go to, uh, this is an, an interesting house, a, a lakefront home built for General Robert Wood. There's a Sears Association. There's a lot going on with this place. Tell me about this. This is on the lakefront in Highland Park. Um, it is, it's a beautiful old house. It was built in 1929. Gorgeous house for General Robert Wood. He had been involved in getting the Panama Canal built. He had done a lot of things. Then he comes to Sears to run it. And relatively early in his tenure, he builds this lakefront house in Highland Park. You can see the lake real clearly in that picture. I mean, when you get up on the North Shore, you get some views like this. Obviously, he didn't have the view we're seeing because this was shot with a drone. But you can see he's taking the train into Chicago to work. Um, and it was actually on the train into Chicago that he met a man who said, you know, I have this idea about car insurance, and and um, Wood then launched Allstate, which was Sears's um, insurance wing that then became independent. So Wood runs Sears, uh, retires. He builds the house in 1929, retires in 1954. In between, there's sort of an unfortunate period where he was the, uh, one of the members of the America First Committee, which tried to keep us out of World War II. Nevertheless, beautiful house. Um, he, I don't know when he sold it. He died in Lake Forest, so or he lived in Lake Forest at the time of his death. So I don't know when he sold it. But in 1974, it was sold to the city of Highland Park, and it became a senior citizen center, a senior citizen community center. It was a community center from 19, I think it opened in 1975, until last year. It was the Highland Park senior citizen center now the city of highland park has it on the market at 2.95 million so it's interesting because it's a lakefront property but it doesn't have a beach that view we saw showed lake but what they're doing is uh dividing the, the lakefront will be separate from this property you're not buying you're only buying the land on top of the bluff you're not buying the ravine and the beach though you would probably get access via the u.s army corps um, the beach down below sort of connects to a public beach, so they're going to try to sort of keep it. Um, but 2.95 million, look at this plaster ceiling. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's worth the three million. Those kinds of ceilings are just spectacular. But there are some things you have to do. I think we have a picture of the kitchen. The kitchen is a dinky little thing, probably what the servants used and then updated like in the 70s. So you'd put in a kitchen. There is no air conditioning. Even though you're on the lakefront, you're very with lake breezes, which is why the North Shore became what it was prior to air conditioning, you probably would put in air conditioning. So you're not just gonna spend 2.95 million if you buy this house. You have more money to put in to bring it up to date. But, oh yeah, here's the kitchen. You know, we've seen this grand house and that's the kitchen. And, and we're gonna call that um, Big Bird Yellow is what we're gonna yeah, call that. Big Bird Yellow, <laughs> yeah, it's a Big Bird. So maybe there were also preschoolers in sure, there, not just. Sure. Um, these pictures are staged. Mm -hmm. uh, the, house, the house does not have furniture. But, you know, it's a great grand old place with a real history. General Robert Wood was a significant figure. And it's interesting to me because um, 
Julius Rosenwald, who was the man who built Sears and then essentially hands the baton to General Robert Wood, he also had an estate in Highland Park about two miles down the lake, the, the lakefront. And so these two men, these two titans of early 20th century retailing were essentially neighbors. One thing I forgot to mention, Wood, not only did he found Allstate, but he's the one who built a, a chain of retail stores, of bricks and mortar stores, that really sort of moved Sears over from being the catalog company it had been, the mail order catalog company it had been, to being the big retail presence in so many cities and towns across America. He was a big deal. Yeah. And it sounds like he did a lot of varied things in his career. I mean, to jump from Suez Canal to Sears seems like a, I would love the backstory there. I'm sure there's a malaria joke we could make, but sure. I'm, I'm, not sure. fast. <laughs> I'm just not fast enough to sure. make it. But that's interesting, though, that this moved into being a, a senior citizen's home for a while. I mean, in the photos, you, the first thing that stood out to me, I was like, why are there exit signs? That's exactly why, right? So there was some zoning wiggle room, I suppose, for it to, to move to that. Yeah, yeah. They have they have rezoned it as residential. Um, there And again, there's, there's discussion on how to do the subdividing of the land. The good news is this thing is not going to be torn down. I mean, this... Somebody, you know, you're not going to go in and buy this house and demolish it. It has landmark protection and it has so much history that uh, it, it, it would be very unlikely to see this torn down. There is one being torn down, just uh, what would that be, about a block away, but it didn't have the distinction that this has. That's right. And so many interesting details. I mean, even just the fireplace pictures, you can see this beautiful, you know, kind of carved facade on the fireplaces. And of course, that ceiling that you mentioned, this beautiful plaster ceiling, a lot of really interesting details. So we'll have to revisit this one, too. I bet we do. All right. So now let us go to a Gold Coast condo. Former uh, Chicago leader Robert Zimmer uh, selling this place. Yeah, this one's really nice. This is on Erie Street. It's on two floors, 37 and 38. Um, Robert Zimmer was the president and then chancellor of the University of Chicago, stepped down in 2021 because of health issues. His wife, Shadi, is a professor of classics who's written several books also at the university. They bought it in 2016 for $3.25 million. They put it on the market last week for $3.6 million. It's really nice. It's got. I, it's hard to see. They didn't really get a great shot of it, but the staircase is this beautiful hanging staircase from your 37th floor portion to your 38th. These big walls of windows, really a beautiful space surrounded by um, high rises in your view. They, they made a lot of changes. Well, I guess actually this is a pretty darn good picture of that staircase. I like that staircase. Um, and that takes you up to where they created a library built-in shelving and just really it's a very stylish very attractive um, space and as I said um, 3.6 million really the the walls of windows that you mentioned that really adds so much to it. I mean your, your eye goes right to it and because they're on the floor that they're on what would you say it was 36 37 and 8 37 and 8 you have such a view of some of the architectural details in the skyscrapers around you and then also the lake beyond them that's really kind of that's quite the that's quite the vantage point to be at on the, that floor number yeah i think you know there's a big there's a difference between having a lakefront condo i think you and i have talked about this the condos on the lakefront have those beautiful views out over the lake but at night it's a view of a black sheet 
um, if you're in the interior of the city, I think this has some lake views. I think we see some water in some of these photos, but you're surrounded by um, architecture and twinkling lights. And I mean, at night, it's a much more dynamic view than if you're looking east over the water. Um, and this would be that library I mentioned. It has a, I think it has a kitchen attached, but really beautiful space. You've got balconies on both levels, really nice place. There's a kitchen attached to the library? To the library, I, I think because there, it used to be two condos, I believe. I'm not certain on that. You know how I feel about libraries, so now I gotta add that to my life goals list of not only having a library, but one with a kitchen attached to it. Yeah, well, if a library makes you smarter and they were already the president of the university and right. a classics <laughs> professor, I don't know how smart, it, it, it must have really put them over the top. I know, right? Yeah, that's that's my theory, that if you have a library in your house, you're immediately smarter by working in it. We should call them and ask them how, how much smarter are they now? Also, I have to say, even the bathroom, like the toilet has a beautiful view. <laughs> you know? I mean, you're sitting there with this wall of windows with, I mean, with I'm sorry, this... I think I have a phone call. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, really, like, like even the bathroom has these gorgeous views from the shower, the tub, and I mean... There was the picture of the toilet there. You got to call it like it is, Dennis. Name the thing. It's true. Toilet, toilets with a view. That will be toilets our spin-off podcast. All right. I'm getting fired, clearly. Okay. Um, let's yeah, now... that was the call I got. Oh, no, yeah, sorry. Yeah, right. Saying she's fired. Get, get, hang up. Get rid of her. Okay. Uh, let's talk about now a, uh, a bungalow in North Park. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this one. I said on Twitter that this is exquisite. I can't think of another word. So we all know that there are bungalows that got, some, you know, you ripped out the hutch, you painted everything orange, you'd made all kinds of changes to a bungalow over the years. And, you know, that's your right. You can do that. This one, nobody had ever done it. So when these buyers came along, this is in North Park on Bernard Avenue. When they came along in uh, 2003, the condo had been built in about 1912. It still looked like 1912. Uh, the, none of the wood had ever been painted. And I'd like to thank everybody who ever lived in that house for not painting the wood. Um, it just looked really great. It had a lot of vintage features intact. And then as sort of students or aficionados of the arts and crafts movement from which this originated, they brought in more features that really did it. Like if we can stop here on the kitchen, um, the kitchen, of course, is not from 1912. Uh, where the kitchen was originally is across the other side of that photo where you see office space. And they built out a kitchen here with wood and copper and tile that complements what was in the original house. The original house, if we can get to the living room and dining room pictures, is just absolutely phenomenal with these great colors. Oh, well, here, let's talk about this bathroom. This is pretty remarkable. So they, they're, again, they're fans of the arts and crafts movement. Bungalows really kind of, a, a lot of the bungalow movement comes out of the arts and crafts movement. This looks like it might have been done in 1912, but no, it was done in the 21st century. The paper on the wall is an original uh, William Morris paper. William Morris was one of the leaders of the arts and crafts movement in Britain. They've got that high tank toilet. Oh, here, I just made fun of you for mentioning toilets. Right, but, and you went right to the toilet. But this, <laughs> I think you could rephrase that, Amy. Um, I, <laughs> But this we're, we're off the rails yeah. today. <laughs> but this is one of those vintage high tank toilets. Um, yeah. Really looks like the era. The saddle tub. And it's hard to tell. I mentioned the William Morris paper. The light fixture is a Charles Rennie Macintosh design. 
um, a contemporary of Morris in Scotland in the arts and crafts movement. So they really, like, they knew what they were doing. They researched it carefully. They put it together perfectly. This dining room, nothing changed. They changed the paint color. Wow. All that glass, all that wood had been left intact over the years. And once again, I'd like to thank everybody who ever lived there and left it intact because now it looks so good. And it's hard to tell in the photo, and I wish they had had a better detail photo, but above the, um, the two carved columns that flank that built-in hutch is, um, oh shoot, I just forgot, is it an acorn? It's a, well, it's a, I'm sorry, it's a piece of produce. I, I just lost it. It's a, tur it's a turnip, it's a radish um, carved onto the top. And the, one of the sellers said that when she saw that, she really knew because this house had all of its old details. There are, there's beautiful tile, the stained glass renders um, roses, but she saw that and thought, yeah, this is the house. It's a turnip? Or it's, a it's a radish. I'm sorry. Read the story. I, I, I apologize that I'm having a brain cramp. So let's move into this, which is just as good here. So this is one small change they made that I think makes a huge difference. If you look at that band of tile there on the floor, that foyer was closed off from the space we're in by a wall. And that would have been for weather purposes. I want to keep my heat in the house. So I come into a vestibule when I come in from outside. Open that front door, you can see, and you're standing in a skinny little vestibule. They removed the wall because we have better furnaces now than they had in 1912. And what they gain is, first of all, everybody gets to see the tile when they're in the living room and dining room, which is from 1912. But also you can see the, the rose-patterned stained glass there in that window much better than you would have in uh, in a narrow little foyer, narrow little vestibule that you enter. And on top of that, in the wainscoting, that what looks like brown paint in this photo, but if you, if you were looking more closely, that's stamped leather that has been on the walls since 1912. I, I have seen that in a preserved really well in a house before in Chicago, and it's fascinating. Um, and the one I saw, a different house, of course, but it was same. It was this beautifully, intricately stamped leather that was, it was, it's so fascinating. And then more of that very vintage looking paper around the top of this room too. You would have thought that this had been there since 1912, but that actually, that is another arts and crafts style that they introduced. They sort of based it on the the windows and the other trim and and put this border up to sort of echo everything that was there. Just look at this vignette. So you've got such a mix of, you've got the original details, the stamped leather, the tile, uh, the, the glass back in the hutch, in the built-in hutch. Then you've got some of the changes they made. They took away that wall, which opens up this space and brings the tile into our view. They added that uh, border that we just talked about. I, I just think, I mean, the, the pairing of old and made to look old details is so well done. They deserve an A plus for what they did. Yeah, definitely. All right, one more house to talk about. Let's talk about a Frank Lloyd Wright house uh, near Racine that is for sale for the first time ever. Boy, I was fascinated to see this one come on the market. Do you know, I have been, this, this park overlooks a, or stands on a bluff overlooking a park in Racine. I have been literally right down at the bottom of that bluff and I didn't know this house was there. Um, we said near Racine because it's in an adjacent suburb. It's in Mount Pleasant, but it touches Racine. Um, so it's, it's a Racine area home. This was built in 1954 
by, designed by Frank Lloyd Wright by a member of the Johnson Wax family, the S.C. Johnson family. Um, her name was Karen Johnson. She has died. Her name was Karen Johnson Boyd. She, her parents uh, also lived in a Frank Lloyd Wright house, and she grew up, uh, spent much of her teenage years in a Frank Lloyd Wright house. And if anybody's been to Racine and seen the Johnson Wax headquarters, which is really a remarkable building that you can tour, that too was a Frank Lloyd Wright building commissioned by her family, by her father. So her parents, her father commissions the building, her father and mother commission the house, and then when she gets out on her own, she commissions another house by Wright. This one is so fascinating, and, and it still today is in the hands of her trust, is the point. She commissioned it in 1954, she died in 2016, her husband died a few years later, and now it's for sale for the first time ever, because it was built expressly for her. It's really nice. This, this I think, is the room that cantilevers out over that park I've been in, Colonial Park. Really beautiful use of wood, and you see that red floor um, that Wright often used both indoors and out. I don't remember if we used a photo of the terrace, but this red floor extends out to the terrace as well, red concrete. Um, you've looked, this I love, this overlook, this second story overlook into the first first floor. This is, so this is 1954. This is when Wright, you and I have discussed this, when Wright is doing more sort of mid-century modern houses than the prairie style and the textile blocks he did in Los Angeles. It's much more, this is much more um, modern than a lot of the other houses. It's so beautiful and kind of blows my mind to think that the I'm just realizing as I look at this, we didn't say the price of the bungalow. That's seven hundred and forty-nine nine. That's just under seven fifty, and that's the reason to say it blew my mind when I saw the price on this is seven twenty-five, seven hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars in Racine. Now, what the agent told me is um, you probably are going to spend about a quarter million dollars more. He's actually telling buyers that because it needs some repair, repairs to the roofs, which are copper. Uh, and it needs some other repairs. So you're probably into it for about a million dollars, he said. But it really is phenomenal. It's triangular. It's built around a courtyard. I mean, it really, it's very much a Frank Lloyd Wright house. And it has this great heritage. You know, the family commissioned three different buildings by him. And you know how I love houses with good stories behind them. So, of course, I'm a fan of that. That red floor is so interesting looking. And, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright, as we have talked about before, kind of liked these little red touches in in various things. But that red floor with that, you know, staged here with that red couch. But I'm really interested in that kind of built-in couch with the library shelves behind it. That's such an interesting detail. And all those built-ins, of course, go with the house. The furnishings don't. You know, one of the things that was interesting, Amy, I don't know if you noticed this in the story. This kind of kills me. Um, Karen Johnson Boyd is the woman who, who uh, commissioned it. Her name at the time she commissioned it in 1954 was Karen Johnson Neeland. She commissioned it with her husband at the time, 1954. They get divorced in 1965. How much later is it today, 1965 to 2022? The Frank Lloyd Wright Conservancy and MAPS still refer to this as the Neeland House. Oh, interesting. Still refer to this as the home, the, because, you know, generally houses are referred to by the man's name, and he was the man who got it built in 1954. I was fascinated by that, and so I don't really want to call it the Neeland House. I think it's another Johnson House. And here's another story. We already mentioned Ferris Bueller. Let's go for our second movie hit in this one. Um, her second husband, Bill Boyd, 
uh, who died in 2020 or 2021, um, before he married her in the 1980s, he was the president of the University of Oregon. The University of Oregon is where Animal House was filmed, and he, he's the man who gave permission. Other schools were not allowing movies to be filmed on campus, especially raunchy movies like Animal House. Sure. And he's the guy who said, oh, no, go ahead, use yeah, our campus. <laughs> yeah, which, of course, launched John Belushi and others. So now I have completely baby-boomered myself in the podcast today. <laughs> Because we've talked about Ferris Bueller and Blues Brothers. I think I need to go take some Geritol or something. Yeah, well, uh, Sorry, and Animal House, yeah. right. Nah, we've got the three quality films, so we'll, we'll take it. <laughs> exactly. All right, well, always a pleasure, Dennis. Thank you so much. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, Chicago's newest tourist attraction? Well, it's slime. We'll talk about it and more right after this. The Greater Chicago Food Depository is facing elevated need right now. Food insecurity is above pre-pandemic levels with decade-high inflation making it even harder for our neighbors to afford groceries. And families with children are at greatest risk of hunger. Inflation and hunger affect us all because only a hunger-free community can truly be healthy. Let's rise to the challenge, Chicago. Please support the Greater Chicago Food Depository now by visiting chicagosfoodbank.org. Second City has named a new CEO, and one of the first items on his agenda is taking the Chicago Comedy Institution to a third city. Crane's Ali Marathi reported that Ed Wells joins 63-year-old Second City from Sesame Workshop, the nonprofit that creates Sesame Street and other educational kids programs, many of which are televised. Wells declined to disclose what the next city is that's in his sights, but geographical expansion has been on the minds of Second City's new owners since they took over in early 2021. At the time, Second City was sold to New York-based private equity group ZMC after putting itself up for sale the previous fall. Marathi noted in her reporting that though private equity firms are known for wringing efficiencies out of properties they pick up, ZMC leaders told Cranes at the time that a growth strategy was the only play that made sense for Second City, likely by reaching more audiences online, expanding its existing corporate business, and opening main stages in cities beyond Toronto and Chicago. The Comedy Institution, which counts Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, Keegan-Michael Key, and Stephen Colbert as alums, has been without a CEO for two years. Longtime CEO and co-owner Andrew Alexander stepped down in the summer of 2020 in the wake of accusations of institutional racism leveled by some performers. And that departure followed a string of financial and organizational challenges, including a 2015 fire that destroyed the company's Old Town offices, forcing a rebuild. Then COVID darkened theaters around the world. However, Wells told Cranes that Second City is coming back strong, with all its stages in Chicago and Toronto reopened and selling out most shows. He declined, however, to comment on exact revenues, but Second City also brings in money from its comedy classes and corporate partnerships, which Wells said are also in full swing. He said Second City is also developing content for different media platforms, including TikTok, which the brand joined just a few weeks ago. ZMC leaders have contended that content creation holds a big opportunity for Second City, and the institution also has a library of content from Second City TV, which originated in the 1980s at Second City's Toronto Theatre and features alums such as Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara. 
On Tuesday, the Illinois Health Facilities and Services Review Board voted to reconsider a vote earlier that very morning against Advocate Aurora's change of ownership exemptions. The board then voted to postpone rather than reject consideration of Advocate Aurora's request. Board Administrator John Neary told Cranes that the vote will allow staff to talk to the applicant about the additional information that board members are requesting, also saying that without the vote to postpone consideration of advocates' request, the health system would not have the right to reapply for the change of ownership exemptions. Cranes reported that while the next scheduled board meeting is not until December 13th, Neary said the board is looking at what options it has to get more information from Advocate and get an approval of the change of ownership exemptions. Advocate Aurora and Atrium Health first announced their intent to merge in May, a plan that includes naming the combined entity Advocate Health. Advocate Aurora CEO Jim Skogsberg and Atrium CEO Eugene Woods would serve as co-CEOs for the first 18 months, with Skogsberg eventually retiring, at which point Woods, who's based in Charlotte, would become the sole CEO. Advocate Aurora previously told Cranes that it expected the merger with Atrium to save anywhere from $100 million to $300 million per year by 2027. Advocate Aurora said at the time it could reduce operating expenses through group purchasing for medical and pharmacy supplies and by combining consumer-facing digital infrastructure. Ahead of the postponement by the state board on Tuesday, industry experts had previously voiced concerns with the merger, saying that a combined Advocate Aurora and Atrium could hold too much bargaining power in its negotiations with multi-state insurers and employers. And Advocate Aurora's bargaining power was already called into question in a lawsuit filed earlier this year by a Wisconsin self-insured pharmacy that claimed the health system uses its size to pursue what it described as all-or-nothing contracts. Advocate Aurora reported 2021 revenue of $14 billion and operates 27 hospitals and more than 500 sites of care. Atrium Health, with 2021 revenue of $13 billion, operates 40 hospitals and more than 500 care sites across North and South Carolina, Georgia, and Alabama. Chicago-based Pharmacan, one of the nation's largest privately held, vertically integrated cannabis companies, is buying all four locations of The Clinic, a group of boutique Colorado marijuana dispensaries. The amount paid wasn't disclosed, but the planned acquisition will likely see all The Clinic locations rebranded to the popular LiveWell brand. Upon completion of the acquisition, LiveWell, the state's leading cannabis brand, will have the largest presence in Colorado with 26 dispensaries in the state. Bloomberg noted that the clinic's dispensary locations are within the Denver metro area and offer cannabis products and accessories to both recreational and medical customers. Visitors to Chicago can view some of the world's finest paintings at the Art Institute and rare discoveries at the Field Museum, and soon they'll be able to visit a museum featuring slime. Crane's Albie Galoon reported that Slumu Institute, a sensory playground dedicated to colorful slime, is coming to River North after a successful run in New York. The slime-focused attraction is opening a 20,000-square-foot space at 820 North Orleans in November, according to a Slumu spokesperson who spoke with Crane. Slumu is following other experiential concepts that have recently arrived in Chicago, including the Museum of Ice Cream, Prince, the Immersive Experience, and Color Factory. Galoon noted that they've all become popular tourist destinations in the Instagram era. Real estate information provider CoStar Group first reported news of Slumu's Chicago plans. Tickets cost nearly $47, according to the website, or almost $80 for an enhanced experience. 
And ticket holders are also encouraged to dress in a waterproof poncho or jumpsuit with a shower cap and goggles. That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening and I'll meet you right back here next time.